Hi, this is Karin Zissis of ASCOA Online. Over the summer, one U.S. dollar was equivalent to one euro. In fact, the dollar was stronger than most currencies than it had been in decades. And sure, this helped Americans afford European vacations, but it also created powerful trends in the global currency markets, as the U.S. is not only an economic giant, but the dollar is used globally as a store of value and, in some Latin American countries, the de facto currency. The wide use of the dollar globally can also pose financial stability challenges that can materially affect households, businesses, and markets. For that, reason, that was the chief of the U.S. Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, who has hiked interest rates to stave off inflation. What effect does the strength of the U.S. dollar have on Latin America? Well, it depends on several factors, including that country's trade balance with Washington and how much of the country's debt is in dollars. In the past, like in the 1980s, Latin American countries that borrowed heavily in dollars saw their payments skyrocket in value when the U.S. currency appreciated. But knowing the risks of a strong dollar, central bankers across Latin America have attempted to pull financial levers to battle inflation, stabilize prices, and fend off recession. It hasn't been easy. They're operating in a tight financial environment with larger-than-usual deficits due to heavy pandemic social spending and a jittery business climate. At the end, what uh, the government's trying to do is to make sure that you have uh, financial conditions during the crisis uh, that will uh, be enough uh, to make the economy muddle through uh, and to cross this uh, very difficult uh, period. So. Roberto Campos Neto, Brazil's central banker, said that at an ASCOA event last year. And since then, he and other regional officials have tried to hold their currency steady against the dollar with some success. The Brazilian real and the Mexican peso, for example, are two currencies that have been relatively stable, while others have sunk. How did they accomplish this? Which currencies are struggling to hold their value? And what does the strong dollar mean for countries that are dollarized? In this episode, ASCOA Vice President Randy Meltzi spoke to Alberto Bernal of XB Investments to get the regional panorama of the state of Latin America's currency markets. Also, we invite you to stick around to the end of the episode where we've got some trivia questions for you to answer. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latinoamérica en foco. América Latina en foco. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas, on politics, economics, and culture in the region. Alberto, welcome to the Latin America in Focus podcast. I am thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you. On the contrary, Randy, thank you very much for, for your friendship and for having me. It's, it's, uh, it's an honor to be with you. Alberto, a recent tweet from the IMF said that the U.S. dollar is at its highest level since 2000. This year, it has appreciated 22% against the yen, 13% against the euro, and 6% against emerging markets currencies. To frame our discussion, 
Can you give a quick overview of what this means? And then you and I will take a magical flight to South America and talk about the currencies there. Sure. Well, let me let me just uh, perhaps give you a, a little bit of a personal anecdote uh, to explain how strong the dollar is and, and why it makes absolutely no sense for this currency to remain at these levels for much longer. So I celebrated my 22nd year anniversary three weeks ago, and um, my wife and I went to uh, Scotland. I'm, I'm in Edinburgh uh, with my wife, enjoying myself, very nice dinner. And then we go to the bar and I ask for uh, a Macallan 18, which is my preferred single malt. And I was expecting, Randy, uh, the bartender to hit me with a 40-pound bill or 35-pound bill. Turns out a shot of Macallan 18 in Edinburgh right now, it's seven pounds. That same drink in any bar in New York is somewhere around 45 to $50. Wow. So the reason why we're here is because the dollar is just ridiculously overpriced. And it is a function of, in my view, three very specific issues. The first thing is that we don't know when the Fed is going to stop raising rates. Because what we're seeing in this world today, we have not seen in more than 40 years. And on top of that, we have one very specific additional issue that makes everything much more complicated, which is that we are getting out of a one in a 100 year event, which is the pandemic. We're still not fully knowledgeable of all the effects that closing the world economy will have on financial stability, on FX rates, on interest rates, et cetera, et cetera. The current account deficit of the United States is too large. It needs to shrink. And the rest of the world is, again, seeing too little flows compared to how much the U.S. is seeing. If you don't know how far the Fed is going to go, you better remain in dollars. So that's one issue. The second issue, obviously, is the tragic uh, situation that is happening now in the Ukraine after Russia's invasion. And that has generated a massive shock to the world economy on the energy, on the food front. And we're still paying for that. For as long as we have the uncertainty of how long this war is going to last, then uh, investors and and citizens alike all over the world will still uh, have some willingness or intention to hold dollar-denominated assets if things get out of hand, because you want to be long dollars if things get more complicated around the world. And finally, I would say that um, in terms of, of the energy crisis that it's coming up, in Europe, we still don't know how bad it's going to be because of the lack of energy supplies that the old continent has. If the recession in Europe gets very bad, then there's a possibility that the Central Bank of Europe would have to make a U-turn and therefore start a renewed easing process, which would obviously make the dollar even stronger. I don't expect those things to happen, but since those are risks, those are very significant risks that are uh, that we're facing, that is perhaps the reason why we have the dollar at these incredibly strong numbers, which, by the way, I don't think they're sustainable in time. And that's what I do think that in 2023, we're going to see a material depreciation of the dollar vis-a-vis all the major international currencies. 
Well, we certainly hope that you are right, because even though vacations are cheaper for those of us who earn in dollars, this is not good for the world at large. So our plane has now landed somewhere in Latin America, and I'd like you to tell us how inflation and interest rates affect Latin American currencies, and what is the role of the central bank in each of these countries or in some of these countries? Well, let me tell you um, also a story. We uh, hosted a bunch of uh, public officials from Latin America during our IMF event. Uh, we do that every six months with XP in Washington, and we had the central bank of the president of the central bank of Mexico, Brazil, Colombia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the central bank of Brazil went over, you know, the international environment, inflation. But then, it, when it started talking about uh, inflation itself in Brazil. It was pretty amazing to see how fast the Central Bank of Brazil uh, reacted to this inflationary uh, uh, spiral that we have seen all around the world. There is probably a very simple explanation for this, which is that Brazilians know what hyperinflation and very high inflation entails. So there's, there seems to be a much more willingness from public officials and the population to take the pain of having higher rates instead of having to live with much higher rates of inflation. And the reality, Randy, is that during the meeting, I was pretty impressed by this, uh, when the public officials were addressing the audience, the main question from the audience was now, not how far are you going to go in terms of rates, how fast or how, how, how many additional hikes you're going to deliver, but instead trying to uh, get the public officials to hint on whether or not they would cut interest rates in March 2023 or June 2023, which is a completely different story compared to what we're seeing in, right now vis-a-vis -vis the Fed and uh, Central Bank of Europe or Central Bank of England. Kudos to most most of the central banks in the region. I, I, I got I to gotta put it that way. Uh, they, they, they reacted fast, they reacted aggressively, and they got ahead of the inflation monster, and now uh, what we see is that inflation in most countries in Latin America has, has started to turn, perhaps with the exception of Colombia, but uh, in terms of Brazil, Peru, Chile, most of those, most of the regional countries have reached a point in which they're, they're much more comfortable with stance of monetary policy and with some luck. What does luck mean, Randy? Some luck means uh, some stabilization of commodity prices uh, tied to the to the uh, Russia Ukraine situation, um, and some uh, amelioration of the inf inflation uh, dynamics in the developed world, which also have an effect on Latin America anyway. Despite the fact that Latin America reacted earlier, but with a little bit of luck, uh, my sense is that 2023 is looking much better from the standpoint of of inflation for our region. That's fabulous. And this is one time where if I can make another pun, the Latin Americans are ahead of the curve, as they say. So since you're telling stories, I'm going to tell stories too. I bet you don't know this, and I'm going to date myself, but I lived in the same dorm as Ricardo Hausmann when I was a freshman in college. And so Ricardo Hausmann coined a terminology in the late 90s, which was original sin. And so I'd like to ask you to tell us what original sin is and if it affects currency movements in Latin America. 
Uh, original sin, uh, based on, on, on Ricardo's view and, and theory, which is a very beautiful uh, at the, you know, uh, literature exercise that he did when he was younger on economics, and he has he pretty much changed the, uh, the, the train of thought of public officials all over the region, is that countries in Latin America, for example, or the emerging region, this, this, this accounts for everybody, because of the lack of development that local markets had, they were subject to uh, finding funding for their fiscal needs and their corporate needs in foreign currency. So if you are uh, a Colombian corporation and you make your income in pesos and then you uh, get a loan with a bank in New York or with investors in New York, which is denominated in dollars, and the peso loses 30%, then overnight you will need to work or sell 30% more in pesos in order for you to be able to pay back that loan. So that's basically the concept of original sin uh, on a, a, from a 30,000 feet above uh, sea level kind of view. Um, now, with a few exceptions, namely Venezuela, Argentina, um, perhaps a couple of others, most of the region has, in fact, I mean, most people don't realize that, or many people don't even know about this issue, but most of the of the good countries, let's put it away. I mean, good countries in terms of good financial and and debt levels and and fiscal fiscal situation. Most of those countries have pretty developed local markets, and they have been able to fund themselves in their local currency. So, in this case, for example, let me give you an example. In the case of Colombia, uh, about twenty five percent of the local debt that trades in Colombia or the local outstanding debt is owned by foreigners. But this is special denominated debt owned by people that um, are investing their dollars or the British pounds or the euros in these countries. And, uh, and they're doing that because obviously the interest rate on the Colombian local debt is much higher than the interest rate on like, for example, an Italian bond. So the, the whole point here is that you make more on interest if you invest in local markets uh, in, uh, in other places of the world. Same thing with Brazil, a fair amount of a large amount of, of, the, uh, of the debt that is outstanding in Brazil is owned by foreigners and uh, the more, the better the REI performs, the better the investment for the foreign accounts. So where I'm going with this is that, thank God, during the pandemic, uh, the original sin issue did not destroy uh, the region despite much higher fiscal deficit levels because local markets have become pretty developed. So countries were able to fund a fiscal deficit of 10% in, in, in the region with uh, local instruments instead of dollar-denominated instruments. And that allowed uh, these countries to follow counter-cyclical policies that helped to ameliorate some of the pain that was obviously uh, uh, generated on the society and the economy because of the lockdowns that the region was forced to implement like everybody else. So in a way, the original sin has fallen in intensity in, in the region with obviously the exception of Argentina, 
or uh, Venezuela, which uh, basically don't have working currencies themselves because nobody trusts the uh, Bolivar or nobody trusts the Argentine peso as a, as a stable mechanism to save. But in Chile, Colombia, Peru, Brazil, uh, Mexico, uh, we obviously have a different story. So we don't have to worry about another debt crisis like the one that I lived through in the 1980s. Alberto, can you tell us how non-financial government policies in Latin America affect exchange rates? Let me give you an, a, a very, a very uh, poignant example. Uruguay is, is a place that I, that I admire very much. Uruguay is, is, I call Uruguay the Switzerland of, of Latin America. Uh, it is one of those countries that changes precedents and changes um, ideological leanings from the standpoint of the precedent itself, but does not generate angst in the market about the stability of the basics of the economic model. And that to me is an outstanding achievement from this country. So, uh, you know, you go from uh, Pepe Mujica to the current government. Current government is very market friendly, but let's, let's face it, Pepe Mujica wasn't an anti-market anti, anti guy. He was obviously had a very left-wing ideology, but he delivered a pretty pretty decent fiscal policy framework, monetary policy, respected property rights, etc., etc. And nobody really was concerned or afraid about uh, aggressive changes taking place in, in, in that country. That was the same in Chile up until uh, what happened in 2019, which changed the dynamic, obviously, from this country. And in, in my view, Chile kind of like went to hell but returned. And I'm actually pretty uh, positive on Chile right now because the population demonstrated a, a, a humongous amount of responsibility by voting against that constitution. Something will happen in Chile. A new constitution will come up. Probably it's a good, it's a good thing that that has to happen. But this new constitution will be written by, most likely, by people that know why, what they're doing. I'm also confident that the Brazil situation with uh, Lula having won the election is going to be okay. Uh, despite the fact that uh, many people are scared about the, the anti-business, anti-market or, uh, you know, leanings of some members of the Lula administration. But my sense is that with, with how close this election was in the way that the Congress is now, it will make it very hard for, for Lula to do anything aggressive. Plus the fact that we, we have seen Lula 1, we have seen Lula 2, and this is Lula 3. So we know what we're dealing with, and that's one of the reasons why I think that the market has taken the victory of Lula, uh, you know, in, a, in an okay fashion. Am I concerned about uh, policies in the region? I still am, unfortunately. I am concerned about possible anti-establishment, uh, anti-market, anti-business policies in Peru. I believe it's a good thing that uh, President Castillo has not been able to amass too much power because his initial ideas were pretty aggressive against the business community. And I am hoping that my, uh, my native Colombia uh, is going to be able to avoid having to go through a much more aggressive anti-market, anti-financial anti 
financial industry type of uh, government because of the balance of powers and the, the limits that exist uh, in terms of the power of the presidency in in Colombia, that institutions will keep the very bad stuff, the very bad ideas from being implemented in Colombia. But again, um, so far, it's not looking that great in the case of Colombia. The Colombian peso has lost almost 30% of its value since Petro uh, took uh, won the election, compared to an appreciation of 3% in the Mexican peso and a depreciation of 3% in the Brazilian real. So uh, Colombia is now on a, on a league of its own. Thank you for that answer. It's super complete. Mexico has a free-floating exchange rate, and Argentina has currency controls. What explains the different approaches, and has one been more successful in meeting policy goals? The Mexican peso, and they call it, in Wall Street, they call it the super peso. Super peso is one of the best performing currencies in the world, Randy. In the world, it's a 1975. It was a 1975 last year. It was a 1975 two years ago. This currency is pretty much like almost tied to the dollar. And it's incredible that it is performing so well. Despite, and I, and, and I need to be obviously, you know me, I'm very honest. I'm a very honest analyst. Despite the fact that not everything that you hear from the Lopez Obrador administration is very market friendly. There's a lot of things that Lopez Obrador and his government say that are definitely not market friendly. But if anything, Mexico has shown that it has incredible institutions to safeguard macroeconomic stability. So to me, one of the, the main criticisms that Mexico received during the pandemic from investors and rating agencies and, and pundits was that Mexico was not doing enough on the fiscal front to counter at the uh, economic collapse that came about because of the lockdowns. And in hindsight, I think that we all are going to have to do a mea culpa and say, Mexico probably did it the right way because the fiscal accounts in Mexico did not deteriorate during the pandemic. And it's one of the few countries in the world that can actually say that. So I'm, I'm very impressed and, I'm, and, and I think that Mexico has huge comparative advantages because of the nearness to the U.S. and near shoring and all the energy potential, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and the north of Mexico grows at six, seven, eight percent year over year. The south of Mexico at some point, hopefully, uh, it will be fixed and that way the country grows more. But uh, from, from the standpoint of financial stability and fiscal stability, um, we at XP think that it is a pretty good story, and that's one of the reasons why the peso is there. Argentina, on the other hand, Argentina doesn't have a currency, Randy. No and currency. Well, I mean, it has an Argentine peso, but uh, uh, the official exchange rate is nothing. It's like it's like me telling you that I'm five uh, nine when I am only five seven. I'm lying to you. <laughs> Just I'm not I'm not five nine. I'm only five seven, and on a good day, as I used to say. Um, but the reality here is that if you have uh, dollar contado con liqui, dollar blue, dollar turismo, dollar comercio, dollar importaciones, dollar exportaciones, dollar oficial, anything, you have like a hundred different types of exchange rates depending on, on, on who asks for those dollars, that system can't work. And it's unfortunate. And the reason why it doesn't work is because 
unfortunately, and even though the Central Bank of Argentina is independent under the Constitution, it's really not independent in, in practical terms. Uh, the Central Bank of Brazil was not independent in a constitutional basis, but has always, or not always, but in the last 20 years, it has behaved like an independent in this, in, in entity, pretty much. Argentina is independent, Central Bank, but it's not. It is very unlikely that unless you completely change this reality and the Central Bank of Argentina becomes completely independent from the wishes of the executive branch, it's going to be very hard for the Argentine peso to once again become a viable currency. And that's why Argentines will continue to save in dollars. Thank you, Alberto. I was with some Argentines in Miami last week, and I heard that they even had a dollar Coldplay for the Coldplay <laughs> conf concert. So go figure that. Alberto, as you know, El Salvador, Ecuador, and Panama are dollarized. And so their currencies neither appreciate or depreciate against the U.S. dollar. But what has the strength of the dollar meant for these economies this year? Well, in the case, in the case of uh, obviously um, from the standpoint of competitiveness, it makes, it makes these places uh, much more expensive. So it reduces the capacity to compete with uh, pure countries that are not dollarized. But at the same time, uh, it gives these countries the capacity to show their populations much lower rates of inflation. So it's, uh, you know, as we say in, in, in Colombia, unas de azúcar, otras de sal. So some are good, some are bad. Uh, but uh, first of all, why are these countries dollarized? Panama may be a little bit different, but Ecuador and El Salvador, why are they dollarized? It's not because it was just one day you decided, hey, let's just dollarize. And in, uh, I would actually put Argentina in, into that camp as well, because Argentina was almost dollarized uh, before 2001 with the convertibilidad. The reason why you get to this point is because you have no capacity to maintain macroeconomic stability. And that's how you get to dollarization level. And actually, let me give you another one. For, for practical purposes, Venezuela and Cuba are also dollarized. That's the reality. Socialism of the 21st century is the longest and most difficult path towards full dollarization. Wow. You, you, destroy, you destroy macroeconomics in your country. Eventually, you will get dollarization because people are rational and they know that if they pay you in bolivares and their bolivares are worth 50% of what they were they were worth at the beginning of the month then you better dollarize real quick because otherwise you're going to be much poorer so from the standpoint of my home country Colombia I hope that president Petro and his economic team get this and understand that this very fast depreciation of the currency is bad news and it can make the life of Colombians a living hell. So let's hope for the best and they, that they don't make more mistakes. We certainly hope for the best. And so, Alberto, our time together has drawn to a close. So I'd like to ask you one final question. Given a choice of a margarita, pisco sour, or a caipirinha, which would you prefer? Uh, 
a margarita. <laughs> but but I, I, I'm, I'm, since I'm 48 and, and you know how metabolism changes, nowadays I ask for skinny margaritas. <laughs> well, Alberto, this has been a fascinating conversation. As usual, I have learned so much from you, and there's nothing like hearing a great story to really cement these concepts that are so complex that you've shared with us today. Un millón de gracias. Obrigada. Thank you very much. Thank you, Randy, and thank you for thank you to the Council of the Americas. Uh, we we love the partnership that we have in between XP Investments and, and the Council. So thank you for the time and the invitation. It's, it was a pleasure as always. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and thank you to ASCOA Vice President Randy Meltzi for being our interviewer. Randy has a treat for us before we go. A lightning round to test your knowledge of Latin American currencies. Randy, let's hear the questions. The first one, what country's president famously said that he would defend the currency like a dog? And for bonus points, was he successful? The second one, and this is a matter of opinion, I have mine, what country's taxi drivers have the most sophisticated understanding of currencies? The third question, what country has no paper money, only coins? The fourth question, the president of the central bank of this country has repeatedly won the best central bank of the region award. And finally, this country has changed its currency name nine times since 1942, and it has had seven names. I hope you all can answer all of the questions the answers will be posted on our website. So go to as-coa.org slash podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Karin Zissis. Our executive producer is Luisa Leme, and this episode was co-produced by Chase Harrison. The music featured in this episode is Adios Fulana by A.M. Peñalosa, performed by La Manga for America Society. Learn more at musicoftheamericas.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can help us spread the word. Give us five stars, write a review, share, and subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.